Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Paul Smithers, the CEO of Innovative Industrial Properties, which is the first and only New York Stock Exchange REIT serving the cannabis space. Yes, cannabis. As I keep saying on the podcast, Leading Voices is in some ways presenting a survey course showing all of the things that we do across the spectrum in the real estate universe. We've hit the mainstream real estate food groups like apartments, office, retail, hospitality, and soon on the show, industrial. And we've hit niches like student housing, single family residential, and data centers. Well, the REIT vehicle, an institutional real estate ownership structure, works in a niche we never would have thunk a decade ago, the medical marijuana business. Paul tells the founding story of his company, hatched in his backyard with his neighbor who'd co-founded two biotech REITs, Alexandria and Biomed, and having recently sold Biomed was looking for a new real estate venture. So they acquired the real estate behind a marijuana grow center and from there created the idea behind the REIT. Lucky thing is that they also had the leadership team from Biomed there in San Diego all ready to go and already knowledgeable about the biotech business which brought immediate public company credibility and knowledge of biotech ready to start up in a business to provide real estate capital for the pod industry. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Paul. One comment, I was figuring that the interview would be full of double entendres and references back to my college dorm days in the 70s smoking weed and listening to the Grateful Dead and Cheech and Chong. We didn't go there. This was 100% a business conversation, which I think makes the point. Business is business, and the real estate discipline and capital market structures bring real-world solutions to very diverse business challenges, including this quite specialized niche. We've gotten great feedback, including from my father, a long-term fan of the show, but someone who had not actually heard about co-working on our recent interview with Jamie Hodari, the CEO of Industrious, one of the leading co-working companies. With all of the headlines about WeWork still filling the top of the news cycle, It's important to hear a different, deeper headline, which is that co-working is here to stay and deeply influencing, even transforming how we approach the office business. Good luck to SoftBank as it lassoes and restructures WeWork, but this innovation that WeWork popularized is a long-term change for the business. If you've not heard it, listen in to the conversation with Jamie, and by the way, so far so good on my own office moving to co-working a couple weeks ago, in industrious space. Loving it so far. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices. Several requests. First, if you like the episode of the show, please share it with a friend. Second, rate us on iTunes. It only takes a minute. Third, visit us on our website at either tevertsearchpartners.com or leadingvoicespodcast.com. And feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com if you have comments or feedback. Thanks and enjoy the show. So, uh, Paul Smithers, thank you very much for joining us here on Leading Voices in Real Estate. We talk to leaders from sectors, nooks, and crannies across the real estate industry. And in today's episode, we get to dive deeply into one of those nooks, providing real estate solutions for the cannabis industry. And you're the president and CEO of the first and only real estate company focused on the regulated U.S. cannabis industry and the New York Stock Exchange, Innovative Industrial Properties. And the regulated cannabis industry means medical marijuana. And I think you're the only REIT that's investing actively in this space. I'm going to want to pepper this conversation with double entendre 
and jokes about marijuana just because that's how I grew up. But this is a serious subject, and you guys are bringing institutional capital and institutional real estate practices to this emerging and very legal business. And I look forward to learning and hearing a lot more from you today. Hey, thanks, Matt. I'm very happy to be here with you. Cool. So I always start the conversations with kind of a, give me like a one or two minute explanation of what this business is that you do just to give our listeners orientation to the conversation and then we'll go deeply. Sure. So Innovative Industrial Properties is a REIT. As you mentioned, we're a public REIT uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And we do focus on licensed medical cultivation facilities. And we started in 2016, went public. So we're a relatively new company, but we've able to get 30 assets in our portfolio. We do sale leaseback transactions with our tenants. We don't do any uh, spec building we have zero vacancy. So what we do basically, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, the cannabis business generally in, in greater detail, but when a licensed operator gets a license, they typically have to have a piece of real estate they identify as part of the license process. So we usually come in either after the uh, operators in business or, you know, during the time period they're building the facility and do our sale lease back. So that's generally our business plan is very simple. We raise public capital. We put it to work. We have an average yield of about 14.5%. Our leases are typically 15 to 20 years long. We have three to 4% annual escalators. So it's a very profitable business. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the producers, how much of this is produced outside and how much of this is produced inside in more laboratory environments? I don't know the right word. Right. Yeah. So the majority of our business is medical cannabis. We do have some operators that have dual licenses that they produce medical cannabis as well as recreational. But we only deal obviously with indoor grows. And our facilities, some are all industrial buildings that have been greatly rehabbed to facilitate the grow. And some of our facilities are a combination of industrial building plus greenhouse. And that really depends on the grower's preference and geographically where they might be located but we don't have any outdoor grows. The outdoor grows you see in California, maybe Oregon and Washington primarily, those are for recreational products. The medical product is different. It has to be strictly grown in accordance with very detailed protocols. So it is a medical product, so you can't have any really deviation in potency or otherwise. So the medical product is grown indoors under very strict conditions, and that's all we do. Let's just go a little deeper in that because I am really curious. Is it the deviation in what's delivered in the product having to be precise and right on target? The dosage, I guess, is maybe the right word. Or are they producing inside versus outside something more scientific, more technical, 15 generations down the pathway of how people biologically grow things? Right. So... I think you have to think about the recreational product versus the medical product. So outdoor grow, you can have a lot of influencers like, you know, weather certainly is a big one. You have pesticides, you have pests that you can't control outdoors. So you're going to have a lot of deviation in product quality. The opposite is inside. And when you look at some of these facilities we own, they're really amazing. You got to think more like a pharmaceutical right. facility than a, a greenhouse. And these products, every cutting, which turns into a plant, 
has a tag on it and it's inventory controlled. And these scientists know what type of nutrients to put in, what type of lighting to get that plant to grow to its maximum benefit. And there's dozens and dozens of medical conditions that have been shown to have a great benefit from medical cannabis. So a lot of these conditions, you know, say epilepsy, for example, that has a specific chemical compound in a specific cannabis strain. So that's why you might have a facility that's growing maybe, you know, 30 different strains and each one is unique. Got it. And targeted to specific medical purposes... I believe have watching television, there's different kind of highs when you're doing recreation, highs that make you smile and highs that make, I don't know what they are, but different versions of that. But on the medical side, it is highly composed and highly differentiated to specific diseases and uses. That's, that's right. And, you know, I'm a native Californian. I grew up with the California legalization, you know, 22 years ago. And once we started thinking about this business, we soon realized that the rest of the country and their medical programs have nothing to do with what California was doing. You know, in California, we, you know, I'm sure if you're a Californian, Matt, I know you're up in San Francisco. Right. Even before we had recreational legal, you just had to go online, fill out a form and you got a medical card 10 minutes later and you could buy whatever you want. We found out the rest of the country is not like that. Our first purchase was in the state of New York, totally different to get a medical card in New York. You have to really go to a real doctor and you have to have one of 12 medical conditions that the state of New York had approved at the time. And you have to show that you suffer from that condition, get the card from the doctor and just go get that specific medicine. So, you know, it's quite an eye opener for us when we looked into this business to say, well, you know what? The rest of the country is not like this. And it took about six months for us to figure out that Medical cannabis is real medicine for people that have some serious, serious medical conditions. And that's what really intrigued us to go into this business. That and things we'll describe later that we have really great market rents on these properties. Yeah. Well, let's go there in a few minutes. But it's interesting. That explanation helped clear it up for me because being, I'm actually from Pennsylvania, but in California, I think of the difference between medical and recreational might be a wink, wink, nod, nod. And that's not at all what you're describing. No, and it's right. And even in medical states, you know, there's a lot of medical users that are really recreational users. And the way we see that happen is when a state that has a medical program adopts a recreational program, a lot of the medical users drop off and fall into the rec program. So we know that those are not the serious medical patients, but the medical markets do survive, even with a rec market. So we look at Colorado, for example, it's the most mature dual licensed state. The medical market still thrives and survives, even with the rec business. Got it. Okay. Well, we'll come back to this because when we talk about the growth of the business and what the future might look like, that we may talk about ways in which you broaden outside of that. But this is a good start and good orientation to the conversation. Let's go back. And I'm curious about you. So we're going to hear your career journey and who you are and how you got here, and then talk more deeply about your business. Where did you grow up and what's your background? And talk about your early days. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, went to uh, undergrad at San Diego State, graduated there in 1979. Then I went right to law school at Santa Clara, graduated in 1982, took the bar, and started practicing law in San Francisco. 
stayed there for six years, then moved back down to San Diego, and I started my own litigation firm at that time. Did trial work and litigation, a lot of different types of clients, and I did that until about 2013. But during that long period of time, much of the practice involved real estate, both you know residential and commercial. We handled lots of lease disputes, construction cases, unlawful detainers, and the like. But in 2013, my law partner, who is Christine Player, who is also my wife of 25 years, <laughs> we decided to wind the practice down. And we retired from practicing after 31 years, which is actually a pretty long time for a, for a litigator. Right. I did get my real estate broker's license in 2004 because I was involved in some residential development deals here in San Diego. And you know, I thought it would be a good idea, and it was to get my broker's license. You know, being a member of the bar, it was much simpler to get the license. So I sat for the test and got that. That's my general background. Uh-huh. So your business touched real estate from standpoint of representing plaintiffs and people as a litigator in this. You were not doing corporate real estate work at all. That's not part of the business that you had. No, I wasn't writing leases or reviewing leases so much as getting involved if there was a dispute. Because at that time, I've been a trial lawyer and a litigator all my professional career. So you know, if there was an unlawful detainer or another lease dispute, that's when I got called in. I did work for a number of corporations here locally, Biomed Realty being one of them, in handling their lease disputes. Got it. And then, so you closed down the firm, you're ready for a second career. What was that? Well, the, the second career was really thinking about playing a lot of golf <laughs> and taking it easy for a while. But my good friend, Alan Gold, who was lived across the street from me for 22 years and great friends and a golfing buddy. He had founded two prior REITs. One was Alexandria and then uh, Biomed Realty, which both REITs were in the life sciences space. And the Biomed Realty was sold to Blackstone in early 2016. So Alan found himself with some free time and I did too. And we were sitting in my backyard one summer evening and we're just thinking about what's to do. And Alan's got a great real estate mind. He's always looking for new opportunities. And he brought up this idea of buying a uh, medical cannabis facility because that opportunity was brought to Biomed Realty when he was president. And they couldn't do it because of the federal prohibition. You just couldn't touch it. But it was intriguing because we figured out that you could really get above market yields because there was just no capital available. And to this day, the capital is very, very scarce for cannabis operators because of the federal prohibition. So we looked into buying one facility, a PharmaCamp facility in New York, just the two of us. And we said, you know, maybe this could be a business. So we got started that way. And let me just go back for one sec. I'm just reading your resume. You founded a company called IsoNano. Was that a short stop after closing out the litigation practice? It was. And I was brought in pretty much as legal counsel and co-founder with some friends of mine. That ISO Nano was an advanced materials company that was put together to apply advanced nano materials to structures and products like sporting goods. Uh-huh. So a lot of smaller companies spun off that. And I was just there for a little while. And once that got off and running and some subsidiaries were spun off, I took off. And really, this is about the time that you know we were looking at this cannabis real estate opportunity as well. Got it. Okay. So back to the backyard. So there you and Alan are talking. Yeah. Alan has founded two blockbuster medical types of science real estate companies, Biomed and yeah. Alexandria. 
And so here's a place where that expertise is a direct corollary to keep going. So talk about the thought process to say, okay, this is a business and it could scale. Well, I got to tell you, but neither one of us knows at that time anything about cannabis. We were not recreational users. We just didn't. So he asked me, what do you know about cannabis? I go, I know it's illegal federally. And he said, well, you know, this is a heck of an opportunity for a real estate play if we could raise the capital. And we started looking at maybe starting private raise and raise maybe 40 or $50 million and buy a couple assets, keep it private. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time we knew we could get maybe 14, 15, 16% annual yields on it. So it seemed like a pretty good deal. But as I mentioned earlier, we started looking into medical cannabis companies in other states other than California. And we really we were intrigued. Mm-hmm. And we started talking to more people and they got interested. And, you know, a lot had to do with Alan's success in the prior two ventures. He attracted a lot of attention. So after a few months, we said, you know what? We could take this thing public. So the real, real gating moment for us was when we applied to the New York Stock Exchange for a listing before our IPO. We applied to NASDAQ and NASDAQ said no. We said, well, what do we got to lose? Let's try the NYSE. And I think because of Alan's experience and prior two companies, NYSC uh, took a meeting and we explained what we wanted to do with the expectation they would say thanks, but no thanks. But they said, you know what, we'll think about it. And so we had about two to three months of conversations with them, the president at the time. And they said, you know what, we're going to do it. We're going to list you. And that was late summer of 2016. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic for us. Let's dig into that because I'm I'm really curious. So this is federally illegal. In certain states, Mm -hmm. it is legal to do just what you want to do. And is the difficult moment for the New York Stock Exchange, I want to talk about the SEC too, because maybe that's another barrier, but how do Mm -hmm. they then say cool, not cool, or cool within this level of discipline? I'm trying to get my head around it too. Right. And it's the whole cannabis business much of it revolves around this conflict between federal law and state law. Right. So when we went public, there were 23 states that had legalized uh, medical cannabis. Uh-huh. So we were obviously just focused on those legal states. So we were able to talk to the New York Stock Exchange folks and let them know that we were not going to touch the plant. Mm-hmm. That is, we were not going to have a license. We're not growers. We're not sellers. We're strictly landlords. And we provide a service to these operators, much like utility service, like Con Edison or something. Uh-huh. We're supporting them, and that's all we're doing. And they got comfortable with that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it, it took some work. It wasn't easy. Can these companies bank? So can they go to Chase or Citibank and have a checking account? Yeah, so all of our tenants have bank accounts. So we only take rent by way of check or, or wire. So it's kind of a misunderstanding a lot across the country that there are no banks available for cannabis growers. Right now, there's about 500 banks nationally that will bank a cannabis client. It just is much more difficult for the banks because they have to jump through a lot of hoops to make sure that the cash they take in is from a licensed source. Mm -hmm. So banks will do it. It's just harder for them to do it. But we're not seeing the national banks involved. We're not seeing the Wells, Fargo's, or the cities. What we are seeing are more regional banks and savings and loans and credit unions. 
Uh-huh. And it will be interesting to understand the ecosystem of where the public markets and institutional capital or lenders are able to play and not, and that place in there that you've identified your niche. Yeah. I mean, that's an evolving situation. It's fascinating to watch. So when we went public, the majority of our investors were retail investors. And we did you know, a traditional roadshow for the IPO. And I think because of Alan's reputation and his relationships with a lot of the traditional REIT investors, we had meetings. People were fascinated to see what a cannabis REIT looks like and who are these people. And we got a lot of jokes. Did you bring samples? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so we got the meetings, but very few of the institutional guys at the time invested. It was just they were not allowed to because of the federal prohibition. But fast forward two and a half years later, the majority of our investors now are institutional hedge funds and some pension groups and other institutions. So it's just such a quickly evolving industry and market. It's really exciting to be a part of it because we are seeing more institutional investors with us, but not necessarily on the pot touching or plant touching folks. There's still a barrier between that, but you know, it's changing. Mm-hmm. And so let's kind of go all around the topics here. So each element is fascinating. One of the things that you did, not just with Alan, but you brought much of the biomed team. So you had an individual who was the visionary and fiduciary been there, done that, but then you also brought a team along with you. Talk about that. It was just perfect timing. So I had always rented space. My law firm had space in the biomed home quarters. So I knew all these folks for 10 years. And since Blackstone was not a public company, a lot of the BMR folks that were on the public side, they found themselves without a job. So once we got this thing off the road, we contacted Catherine Hastings, who is now our CFO. We contacted Brian Wolf, who is our general counsel, Andy Bowie, who is our controller, Ben Regan, our director of acquisitions. So it was like we got the band together almost, you know, like the old rock and roll movies. We got this group that knows how to do it, that is used to underwriting startups in the life science space. And there's a lot of similarities between underwriting a life science tenant and a cannabis tenant. And so we got about six of us together and we all knew each other and it was, it's been great fun. Mm-hmm. So we passed by this subject at the beginning of the conversation and I don't want to out you or anybody else, but is your team a team who knows, did you all smoke dope in high school? I guess that's the question I got to ask. <laughs> or, well, <laughs> We'll take the Fifth Amendment on that, but I can tell you, no. And if you saw pictures of us, you would say this is the most straight-laced group I've ever seen in my life, and we kind of are. But we've learned a lot about the product, and you certainly can know a lot about it without using it. Right. But I will say this, and I've said this to relatives of mine, if I had a medical condition that was indicated to be helped by cannabis, I'd do it in a heartbeat. When we're on the road to meeting people, we walk away with dozens of new stories of people who will say, you know what, I've got a brother-in-law who's got cancer and marijuana is the only thing that helped them. I've got somebody who's got Parkinson's and it's great for Parkinson's. So anecdotally, you just hear all these stories about it. It's such a wonderful substance to help people. Absolutely true. And I did look on your website, so I did see all these people with shiny shoes or whatever. And so it's not all with tie-dye as you'd expect that way. But talk about cultural differences and talk about kind of dealing with those folks who are your clients. Maybe they have exactly the same profile that you do, but I'm imagining that they're closer to the plant and therefore 
culturally that's more a part of their lives and their lifestyle. I'm also guessing, and I think you've spoken about this, that your business, because you're the institutional partner, brings like a venture capital firm does to young people maybe who started to do a startup is you're bringing institutional practice or discipline or business practices. Talk about that both culturally and how much you're supporting them through the growth of their business that way. Right. So I would hate to disappoint you, but the people we deal with are more institutional, more Wall Street, a more PhD in agribusiness and in plant growth and chemistry and biology. I mean, the groups we deal with are very talented management teams. On the business side, a lot of them are Wall Street veterans, run hedge firms, you know, hedge funds, are really familiar with business. When you really get down to, you know, if you want to call it a cultural difference, it's really the grow team. And the grow team typically are the people you would maybe be stereotyped as, you know, someone you think are more involved in cannabis. But even the grow team are highly educated and experienced because we're fortunate now is the groups we're dealing with are mostly multi-state operators or MSOs that are tremendously successful in winning licenses in states and putting up these cultivation facilities and growing and getting market share and branding. And it's a real business. And it's not unlike any other business that you would see in any of the Fortune 500 companies. So we do get calls all the time from other groups that are probably less experienced in business. And we really find that it's not what we do now. But, you know, we're very polite and we'll say, let us see your financials. And they might say, well, we don't really have financials. Mm -hmm, Right. You know, that's an item right there. We say, well, we wish you best of luck, but our program's not for you. So we do have some of that. But the people we underwrite are the management teams that are very, very impressive. Uh And I want to come back to kind of more of a survey of that business and the institutionalization around the field in that business. But let's talk about, okay, so you did start this, you get the biomed team together, the band's back together again, you buy your first facility, you're rolling. Talk about the growth path and how that's worked so far in the business. Well, sure. So again, I'll go back in time, not that far, but we do our IPO in 2016. We closed on our first acquisition. Then the world's turned upside down when Donald Trump wins the election and not Hillary Clinton. So the third day in office, President Trump appoints Jeff Sessions as his attorney general. And he kind of rocked the cannabis world by tearing up the coal memorandum and saying only bad people smoke marijuana. And that really kind of put the industry into a quick skid. And with that, a lot of our investors got a little nervous. So we had to work through that, which we did, because after two or three months, the cannabis world saw that, you know, the world's not ending, that you know, it's not really going to be any different than it was under Barack Obama's tenure. So we got back on track and we picked up a second acquisition, third, fourth, fifth. We started doing some more capital raises and just been a real nice steady growth up until today where we have, I think we have 30 assets now. And the institutional capital markets have been very receptive to our capital raises. So we have a very easy, simple plan of we go out and raise capital and we say within six to nine months, we'll place that capital at 13, 14, 15% returns. And then we'll come back to the market when we spend all that. So that's kind of a rinse and repeat formula. It's worked out real well. Wow. So it's 30 assets. And what's the geographic dispersion? 
we're over 12 states. So we have good geographic diversity. And we do focus on the states that have more robust regulatory plans in place. We're not in Oregon or Washington. Those are not markets for us because both those states have next to zero limitation on how many licenses they issued. So quite naturally, now they have an overabundance of supply, which causes price compression, which puts growers out of work. So it's just not a good environment for us. We prefer the states that issue just a few licenses to begin with and have strict control over the program. That's where we find where the better MSOs want to be and where the real talent is. So we gravitate towards those states. So it's interesting because I'm thinking the better MSOs, I know it's medical, but maybe you want to be in the state that's wide open, although maybe you want to be in the regulated state because there's barriers to entry. So there is more predictability to what your business is going to look like. That's exactly right. It's the barriers to entry we like. And I need to make it clear that we're not just medical only in the sense all of our tenants have medical licenses, but some of our operators with our permission and our blessing are also in the recreational market. So many of our tenants are in states that do have dual programs and we support that. Okay. So you support that dual program concept. And what's the premium on returns? So you've talked about mid-teen returns, which in the read world is pretty phenomenal. How does that maintain? How has that maintained during this period? And as maybe, we'll talk about competition in a second, but do you see those spreads tightening as this becomes more known popular? Yes, we do. And we've even seen that in the last 18 months. And it's due to, I think, a, a number of factors. One, we are really getting the MSOs that are more mature, have a better balance sheet, and they can demand a little better lease rate than some of the startups in new states. So we do see a little compression there, but we're still averaging, you know, right now it's 14.7 is our blended rate. As we said in our earnings call that we're also seeing a ranges between 11 and 14% going forward is probably the new normal. Uh-huh. And some of that has to do with competition. Uh-huh. And what is the competition? So who else either in the public or institutional world or in the non-institutional world are you competing with for providing that kind of space? Our main competition remains uh, private equity groups that come in and say, we like what you're doing here to an MSO. Here's some capital. But of course, in return, they're taking ownership in the company, some equity. And we don't do that. And there's many growers that are fine and they'll get what they think is a better opportunity giving up some equity as opposed to doing a sale lease back. So when we talk to an operator, oftentimes they're on that fence. You know, do we go with the sale lease back with IAP or do we go with an equity and give up, you know, 18% of our company? So that remains our main competition. There's also some private REITs that have popped up and they're doing exactly what we're doing or trying to. They even have our exact lease terms and, and they've really taken our program and run with it. However, they have limited capital. None of them are public in the United States. And we've seen and heard that a real barrier for these startup REITs is trying to get listed in the United States, that the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ have said no. So that is forcing them up to the Canadian exchange which is less than desirable for a lot of investors because of liquidity issues on that exchange. So the fact that we are the only ones with the NYSC listing is really uh, providing quite a benefit for us. 
Right. And why are those two exchanges saying no to a copycat to you guys? Is there some exclusivity in this or are they not coming at it from the same institutional perspective? Well, you know, I think it's a couple of reasons. And, you know, this is just anecdotal because as far as I know, not neither exchange is, you know, has a written policy on it, but a lot of it has to do with timing. And I'll go back to 2016 when Hillary Clinton was a sure bet and she was going to be very friendly to the cannabis industry. Then you got Donald Trump. So the political environment has changed. They have new management at the NYSC. And I do believe that we got the meetings and we really had a foot up because of Alan Gold's prior history with the exchange and the prior two reads. So those two things, I think, really explain why we were fortunate enough to get the listing and the following companies have not been. Got it. So talk about your prognosis for the future, maybe in terms of normalization or further legalization or maybe federal legalization. And then what happens to your business? Well, you know, that's something we uh, watch very, very closely because this industry is so fascinating because it's, it evolves so much around what's going to happen at the federal level and what happens at the state level. So obviously at the federal level, cannabis remains a Schedule One controlled substance, you know, which generally prohibits all cannabis use and cannabis-related commercial activity. But, you know, that said, Congress has enacted spending bills in the past several years, since 2014, that contain an amendment. It's called the Joyce Amendment that's attached to the omnibus spending bill. And what that says is that there will be no funding for U.S. attorneys to prosecute licensed medical producers in licensed states. So that's a little known carve out that protects medical growers in licensed states. But that could change. But what we're really seeing on the federal level, it's fascinating how this is going to work, is we're seeing emphasis on states' rights bills as opposed to an across-the-board federal legalization. And we believe that the emphasis will remain on states' rights because when you think about it, right now we have 33 states that have programs. They're generating jobs. They're generating tax revenue. Those states want to protect that business. If we have a federal rescheduling that says now it's all legal at the federal level, that would open up interstate commerce. And what that means is, you know, your big agri-states like California, maybe Oregon and Washington, they can sell product across borders. And I think these people realize that, you know, your smaller states like Maryland, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts that have really robust programs, they would really suffer. So that's why we're seeing a big push for states' rights and not a federal legalization. And it also fits kind of the Republican mandate, which is states' rights, Trump. It does, but there's two bills that are really getting attention now federally. That's the uh, State Banking Act and the States' Rights Act. State Banking Act would loosen up regulations around banking, and that's a good thing. But, you know, in typical Washington fashion, it got out of committee in the House uh, a few months ago, but then the Democrats put it back into committee because they wanted some more social equity language. It might go to a full floor vote in the next couple of months. We'll see. But then it has to go to the Senate, which Mitch McConnell has indicated he has no interest in having a cannabis bill get a floor vote in the Senate. And we don't think anything's going to happen during this Congress, which means until the end of next year, 2020, when we have a new administration. So there's a lot of noise going on, but 
I don't think anything significant is going to come out of Washington for the next two to three to four years. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like for you, a threat's a change in either direction, either opening up or closing down hurts you, but the status quo puts you in a pretty good position. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if Safe Banking Act does pass, you know, in the two to three years, that's fine because we're not going to have any of the national banks participate because they're on record as saying we're not going to do that until there's federal legalization. Mm -hmm. So what we will see is maybe some more regional bank lending, but they're going to lend to these operators as a mortgage product, right? Mm -hmm. And they might do, you know, a 40, 50% LTV on the industrial space. That's not what we do. We have a sale lease back. Oftentimes we'll do up hundred percent to value. Mm -hmm. And that's what these growers want. They need cash to expand. So, Even if we have a safe banking act, I don't really think it's going to affect our business significantly. So I've been reading a lot lately. One always reads on this subject, but the last two, three weeks, there's been some stocks that plummeted, not yours, but in the overall space. So if you think about if I'm an investor and I want to get into the burgeoning marijuana cannabis business in all of its different elements... Talk about the five different places people can invest and how this sits within those. Right. So this summer has been pretty tough for the cannabis market generally. I mean, we have three of the largest Canadian growers, Canopy Growth, Aurora, Cannabis, and Kronos. You know, they had a very bad reporting. They've been dropping 27 22%. And I think with those three biggies in Canada, it's brought down the market overall. But- a lot of writers, when they look at our stock, they really look at us like the picks and shovels to the gold brush, mm-hmm. that we're not a licensed operator. We're not subject to price fluctuations of cannabis and the like. You know, we enter into long-term 15 to 20-year leases with these operators. So I think people that do choose to invest with our company, they look at it as a little more stable than investing in a grower. And as I mentioned, the Canadian growers have really had a tough couple of months. And that's growers. So just curious, again, the the ecosystem here, talk about distribution or stores that you go to, retail stores, which seem to be everywhere. And talk about products, delivery mechanisms, or testing methods. I don't know what all the VCs are going into. Yes, it's quite involved. And we have a small point piece in the uh, production but, you know, if you look at our facilities, they're just not growing there because, you know, a lot of states don't allow a flower mm-hmm. to be smoked. Mm. So it, the marijuana has to be reduced into a concentrated oil. And that oil can be put into a vape pen or the oil can be put into an edible or a topical lotion. So in our facilities, you'll have the grow rooms, but you also have processing, which are very sophisticated laboratory spaces that process into oils. Then you have kitchen sometimes if you have an edible program. Then you have packaging and labeling, et cetera. But within the industry itself, it's like any other industry. You have lots of different sectors. And, you know, if anybody's interested, I would say go to the Las Vegas convention in December, the MJ Biz, and you'll see the entire Las Vegas convention floor (laughs) is filled with vendors. And you can't imagine the dozens and dozens and dozens of businesses that are related to this. You start with the laboratory space. You start with insurance, law firms, some real estate groups. You have packaging. You have testing. You have print materials. Just 
everything that's involved with producing the product. But then, and California is a good example of how they have different licenses for production, for processing, for distribution, for lab testing, and for retail delivery. So there are many different sub-businesses within the business itself. And for you, if this expands slightly, does it expand into retail or having retail tenants? Does it expand into manufacturing that supports this business? Does it land into recreational? I think that the next logical progression, and we have been looking at some retail facilities. When we talk about retail facilities, we mean dispensaries that are you know, typically 5,000 to 8,000 square feet, maybe. And those are the ones you may find in a mall somewhere or on a corner. Um, we have been looking at some portfolio type acquisitions. That is, you know, a group of eight or 10 or 15 of these combined together. What we are seeing, Matt, is at the retail level, the expected returns are a little less. They're more about the nine and 10 and 11% yields. So right now, our pipeline is so full of really good opportunities on the cultivation side where we can get higher return and we get longer leases. So as long as that pipeline remains this vigorous, there's not a lot of incentive for us to look at a $2 million retail as opposed to a $20 million cultivation. Absolutely. So, Paul, this job's a big change for you, both because it's a different industry, but also you were a lawyer running a small law firm with your wife, and now you're running a REIT, and you run a team and leading a team. Talk about the difference for you in that kind of function, not about the cannabis part of it, but just what you know, what it's like to run a company and how that's going. Well, yeah, you know, I go back to the team, and it's couldn't do this without this great experienced group that's worked so long and well together. So it's been relatively easy for me to come in because I've got great faith in my team members. They can do what they say they're going to do. But personally, the biggest change I would say is just coming into the public company world. Mm -hmm. And from being in the private sector all my career, that's a real eye-opener. And the reporting and, you know, the accounting and just the cost and time spent in in supporting a public company is quite an Mm eye-opener. I bet. I'd assume that part of that means that growth matters because if you're not spreading, even though you have high yields, but if you're not spreading the business across a wider base, then supporting the public company model is pretty hefty. Right. You know, like I think most REITs, the model is keep growing, but we're pretty disciplined and we turn away far more deals than we sign up. It is tempting because when we're out doing our capital raises, a lot of times we leave money on the table, which just sounds counterintuitive. But of course, it doesn't do our investors, our shareholders any good if we're going to take that capital and, you know, have it sit in a bank for 12 months and, you know, still have to pay, you know, a dividend on that. So part of our expertise, and I think something we've done pretty well is gauge the market, gauge the pipeline, figure out how much capital we need to raise, how long it's going to take us to put it to work mm-hmm. and then repeat. So That's something that is important to us and important to the shareholders. And so far, we've done a pretty good job on it. Mm -hmm. Two questions. Biggest surprise being CEO of public company, and then the biggest surprise in this particular sector, which is so quickly emerging. Well, I would say, um, and I'll be candid with you, I think it took me a little while to understand that when I speak publicly or even in small groups, what I say matters in that in this day of 
Twitter and everybody's online, you get quoted as a CEO with a stock, uh, it can move the stock and you could really be in trouble. So I've had to really be careful about what I say regarding the the company and the share price, which is news to me, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's something that's got to be done. Part of the CEO again in public company, just really having to understand financial modeling and accounting. Mm -hmm. I took basic accounting in college 40 years ago. But I'll tell you the truth, when I started this company and started talking to the our outside accountants and sitting in audit committee meetings, I had to go and I literally bought basic accounting for dummies and read it at night to, you know, just to get myself back up to speed on basic accounting and the terms of art. So that was kind of an eye opener for me as well. Mm, I bet. And what about being in this business? What's the biggest surprise in the cannabis business? I would say that the level of professionalism, because I think when I started, I was kind of maybe like some of your listeners may think that, you know, these are a bunch of stoners that are growing pot, maybe in their college dorm and broke out to growing it in somebody's yard. That's not like this. This is very sophisticated business people that have raised a lot of capital, that have invested in million, million dollars, multi-million dollar facilities, and they know what they're doing. I think when we talk to the grow teams, these are people that are genetic engineers and they're passionate about what they do. They know they're creating great medicine. So I was just so pleasantly surprised about the quality of the management teams of our tenants. Mm-hmm. So last couple of questions. I find leadership is a funny thing. And some of the folks I interview and talk to, maybe they were born to be leaders and other people get to two thirds of the way through the end of their career and they get to be a leader and it's becoming to them, right? They grow into that kind of a role. And Mm -hmm. some people always feel like I'm pretending at this, right? So (laughs) is there any aha moments or oops moments when you're sitting there going, holy cow, here I am, here I'm doing this. Am I worthy of commanding this presence or commanding this stage? Any moments that come to mind for that? Yeah, I think, you know, at the beginning, when we're on the road for the IPO and you're sitting in front of these institutional investors that, you know, have been invested billions in REITs. Right. And sometimes they're speaking, they're talking a language that, quite frankly, is, what do they say? Right. And fortunately, I was with Alan and I was with Catherine Hastings, our CFO, who were completely conversant. Right. And it took me a little while to get it, but that was, what am I got myself into? Mm-hmm. But I think, again, when I put this team together, we all had certain tasks and expertises. And one of mine was understanding the regulatory environment and bringing that expertise from a legal standpoint. So I was very comfortable in doing that and, and to this day. And, and I'm very comfortable now in the capital raising position, but that took a little growing into. I can imagine. And my last question is always, if you had advice for a young person getting into the, I always say the real estate world, but in the business world, what would that advice be? Well, that's funny because I just had this conversation with one of my sons last night. They both graduated from college a couple of years ago and they're doing well in business. But each of them individually, one's a real estate and one's in the tech world. And they're both regretting not having a better accounting background and a better financial modeling background. Because in each of their jobs, they're finding that would have been a great skill to have. So, you know, if I was talking to a high school senior and said, yeah, I want to go into business. I want to go into real estate. I say, really, I know it's painful, but focus on accounting and financial modeling because that'll always come to be very helpful in whatever business you're going to go into. Oh, that's great advice. It's interesting. I always ask this question. No one said that on the podcast, 
But I interviewed tons of people for kind of CFO type positions or controller positions. And I'm always yeah. curious why someone majors in accounting during college. You know, in the liberal arts world, it's such a broad world. That's such a seemingly narrow focus. But they all say it's the language of business. And if you don't know that, it's really hard to understand how business really works. I think that's exactly right. And especially in the public sector, you've got to know your accounting. Yep, 100%. Hey, Paul, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation and good luck to you and your company. It's a fascinating business and I can only imagine it's full of growth, I guess is the right word. Well, hey, Matt, I really appreciate the conversation and thanks for the opportunity to talk. Yeah, thank you much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.